Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and welcome to Postscript, a special New Books and Political Science series in which Lily Gorin and I encourage authors to bring their expertise to a pressing contemporary political issue. Today, we engage the latest chapter in the Second Amendment as the United States Supreme Court is poised to hear a concealed carry case from New York State next week. I'm thrilled to have two experts on Second Amendment jurisprudence who are also expert at speaking to audiences who are not steeped in the politics of militia, self-defense, and firearms. Joseph Bloker is the Lanty L. Smith, 67 professor of law at Duke University School of Law. Professor Bloker has a long list of publications reflecting his interest in federal and state constitutional law, the First and Second Amendments, legal history, and property. For today's discussion, I'll mention that he co-authored Free Speech Beyond Words, The Surprising Reach of the First Amendment from NYU Press with Mark Tushnet and Alan K. Chan in 2017. And the first podcast I did for new books in political science was his The Positive Second Amendment, Rights, Regulation, and the Future of Heller from Cambridge University Press, which he co-authored with Daryl Miller in 2018. Today actually marks my 70th podcast, and there's some poetry to it being with Joseph. Um, Most recently, his expertise in First and Second Amendment law combine in what I consider to be one of the most important articles on the Second Amendment, When Guns Threaten the Public Sphere, a new account of public safety regulation under Heller, in which he and Reva Siegel interrogate the impact of gun rights on free speech. Welcome back to the New Books Network, Joseph. Thank you so much, Susan. It's an honor to be back. Also joining the conversation is Jacob D. Charles, the Executive Director and Lecturing Fellow at the Center for Firearms Law at Duke University School of Law. His scholarly interests include the legal regulation of state and private violence, Second Amendment doctrine and theory, and the place of guns in the criminal legal system. In addition to his law degree and distinguished record as an attorney, Jake has a master's in political theory, so he comes to the podcast honestly. His work on the Second Amendment has appeared in numerous law journals, and his public-facing scholarship includes work with CNN, NPR, PolitiFact, Newsweek, and Mother Jones. His most recent publication, Securing Gun Rights by Statute, The Right to Keep and Bear Arms Outside the Constitution is forthcoming in the University of Michigan Law Review. And here, Jake interrogates the non-constitutional gun rights that create broad powers for gun owners beyond the Second Amendment. He's been a force in creating interdisciplinary conversations that inform the work of political scientists, historians, sociologists, and legal scholars. And it's my pleasure to welcome him to New Books in Political Science. Thanks, Susan. Very happy to be here. So the American media has been focused on the Supreme Court's upcoming oral arguments in an abortion case from Mississippi and the court's actions regarding abortion restrictions created by Texas SB 8. But another important case regarding concealed carry has gotten a a lot less attention. Uh, On Wednesday, November 3rd, the court will hear arguments in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. The association is challenging a longstanding New York State law that limits carrying guns outside the home. New York is a May issue state in which applications for concealed carry are not automatically granted, but reviewed to determine if the person has, quote, proper cause, unquote, to conceal a gun. We've not seen a Second Amendment case since Heller v. District of Columbia in 2008 and McDonald versus City of Chicago in 2010. 
And this case will be heard by a court that now has three conservative appointments made by former President Donald Trump, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett. We have listeners around the world with a wide range of expertise. So, so let's begin with some basics. Um, then we'll turn to the New York State case and place it in the wider context of Second Amendment jurisprudence. The Second Amendment to the Constitution reads, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And in this case, the two men who have asked for an unrestricted concealed carry are saying that the turning the, down the, that is, 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 is violating the Second Amendment. So for 200 years, the Supreme Court rarely ruled on the Second Amendment, but in 2018, it declared that a D.C. handgun law violated the Second Amendment. Let, let's go back. What was the core finding in, in Heller, just to remind people of what the court has actually said? Sure. I mean, as you say there, um, Susan, for basically two centuries, the Second Amendment as a matter of constitutional doctrine was effectively dormant. Uh, there's not a single federal case anywhere in the United States for more than two centuries that strikes down a gun law on Second Amendment grounds, which is just extraordinary when you think about it from 1791 when it was ratified all the way up until after 2000. There's two district court cases I can think of, but they both got overturned on appeal. What the court had to resolve in Heller is the question that was for generations sort of the central debate uh, in Second Amendment law and scholarship, which is, does the right to keep and bear arms extend only to people and arms and activities having some connection to the organized militia? Or does it include certain private purposes like possession of a handgun in the home for self-defense? And in Heller, in a five to four deeply divided decision, the court endorsed the latter of those. And so since 2008, uh, when that case was decided, we've really seen a, a essentially the, the birth and sort of first awkward steps of what's effectively a new constitutional right, um, because a right that encompasses, encompasses private purposes is very different in scope than a right that is just limited to people who are, um, uh, you know, who bear some connection to the organized militia. Um, I should say in, in, my, in the course of explaining Heller here that I was one of the attorneys in the Heller case. Um, I helped represent the District of Columbia, uh, whose gun law was struck down there. So just in the interest of full disclosure, uh, I should point that out. I should also point out something that I think often gets underappreciated about the Heller decision. People see it as a big win for gun rights, and in some respects it was, because it did sort of redefine what the right to keep and bear arms means. But Heller also made very clear, and this is in Justice Scalia's majority opinion, made very clear that gun regulation is not categorically unconstitutional and that the right to keep and bear arms like all other constitutional rights, including the so-called fundamental constitutional rights like free speech or the right to vote is subject to some forms of regulation. And I just think that's so crucial to emphasize because it sets up all the litigation that's happened in the lower courts and the question before the court uh, here uh, in, the, in the case you mentioned that's being argued um, next week. Now, it, it may be an obvious point that gun, you know, that regulate that, that constitutional rights are subject to regulation, but it's really worth emphasizing because I think sometimes people draw the sort of false dichotomy between the Second Amendment and gun regulation as if the two can't coexist. Um, when Justice Scalia makes it very clear that that's not that's that's not the case. Um, and I'll just just very quickly, because this this these sentences are just burned into the brains of anybody who litigates the Second Amendment space. Um, but starting on, as Jake probably knows, the page number, page 626, I think, of the opinion, um, Justice Scalia says, nothing in our opinion should be taken to cast doubt 
on longstanding prohibitions on the possession of firearms by felons and the mentally ill, or laws forbidding the carrying of firearms in sensitive places such as schools or government buildings, or laws imposing conditions and qualifications on the commercial sale of arms. He goes on to say um, that dangerous and unusual weapons, that meaning weapons that are not in common use at the time, also not covered by the Second Amendment. And then lastly, and I can stop here, I guess, because it brings us back to where we started. Um, since you pointed out very rightly, this New York case is about concealed carry. And uh, that is, you know, a practice that has been subject to regulation over time. It's worth noting that Justice Scalia says specifically in Heller that concealed carry probably also falls outside the scope of the Second Amendment, because as he said, the majority of the 19th century courts to consider the question held that prohibitions on carrying concealed weapons were lawful under the Second Amendment or state analog. So Again, Heller, one of the most important takeaways from Heller is not just that there's this individual right to keep and bear arms for certain private purposes, but also that it's subject to lots of different forms of regulation. The hard questions today, including the question before the Supreme Court now, is what kinds of regulation can coexist with the right? Yeah, and in your book, you and Daryl Miller point out that uh, over 5,000 local and state gun laws have been found constitutional because of this very carefully written uh, paragraph in the opinion that makes clear that this, that the D.C. statute, which said that you couldn't have a handgun in the home, they felt that went too far. But all of these other things did not. Um, Jake, let me ask you, Heller dealt with federal law in D.C., but there was also a case two years later that invalidated similar laws in Chicago and Oak Park. Uh, Illinois, McDonald versus City of of, of Chicago. Do, does any finding in McDonald impact this new case? Is there is there anything there that we should also be thinking about? Yeah. So uh, in the Heller decision, it was only about DC's handgun ban, and because DC is a federal enclave, it has this special status. And then two years later, in the McDonald case, the court was confronted with the question of whether or not the technical legal question was whether or not the Second Amendment is incorporated against state and federal or state and local government. So um, in constitutional terms, whether or not the same constitutional rule applies against state and local governments as applies against the federal government. And the court has been moving in, in a direction in which most federal constitutional rights apply the same to the federal government as they do to state and local governments. And so that was kind of the, uh, the major takeaway from the McDonald decision. I'll say that there is a kind of less substantive takeaway from the McDonald decision, and that is um, what, what Joseph and Eric Rubin have written on, um, where uh, Justice Alito, in the majority opinion there, kind of as a throwaway line, says, we're not going to do this different incorporation for the Second Amendment. We're going to do the Second Amendment incorporated against state and local governments the same as the federal government, um, because doing something differently would be treating it as, quote, a second-class right, and we're not going to do that. Um, that was about that narrow legal question, and gun rights advocates have taken that line and, and run with it in a different direction, which is to say that the Supreme Court's failure to take a new Second Amendment case until recently has meant that lower courts and legislatures are treating the Second Amendment itself as a second-class right, that they're that courts are treating it um, not as they would other rights, that they're not striking down laws as stringently as they would, they're not reviewing regulations as closely, uh, that legislatures are uh, not treating this as a fundamental right in the same way they treat other rights. So that kind of rhetorical takeaway from McDonald's decision, substantively, what McDonald did was 
not give any further insight on the scope of the Second Amendment and, in fact, repeat the same paragraph that Joseph just read from Heller and said, literally, we repeat these assurances here and then repeated them. Uh, But it didn't give any kind of more substantive breadth to what the Second Amendment actually means. Clarence Thomas writes a concurring opinion in which he wants it done differently. And I think you're uh, alluding to that in your earlier answer about about we don't need a different way from, from Justice Alito, which is that Clarence Thomas wants to go back to a clause in the Constitution, the privileges and immunities in the 14th Amendment, and say, this is a privilege and immunity, and we need to rethink a very old case, the slaughterhouse cases, and and we need to come at this differently. Uh, it, we'll talk about this later, maybe, but is, is there anything about Clarence Thomas's obviously different approach than Alito? Uh, and Scalia, but who won't be ruling on this case, but that would matter in this upcoming case? Is this privileges and immunities idea something that we need to pay attention to? So uh, for what it's worth, I don't think we have to pay attention to it in this case. It was a fascinating sort of almost, uh, I wouldn't say sideshow, but it was a fascinating thing about the McDonald case. So the Slaughterhouse cases, which you mentioned, are um, an 18, 1870s case from the Supreme Court reviled by people left, right, and center as probably, oh, actually, I would say almost certainly wrongly decided. This one is not one where it's like the originalists are divided. Like, um, in fact, there was some interesting briefing in the McDonald case where sort of well-known liberal constitutional scholars like Jack Balkin joined with well-known libertarian constitutional scholars like Randy Barnett to argue, you need to overturn the slaughterhouse cases and uh, decide this case under privileges or immunities instead of under due process. And uh, in fact, Alan Gura, who was arguing the case for Otis McDonald, devoted something like 80, per- 80 or 90% of his briefing to exactly that argument. And it just got blown up at oral argument. And Justice Scalia all but made fun of it. Um, uh, and the idea was, look, whether whatever you think about the slaughterhouse cases, they're more than a century old by now. And I do believe in stare decisis. I'm not going to overturn it. What, what that really shows us, and this is to your point, Susan, is how different Justice Thomas is than many of the other justices when it comes to issues of stare decisis and issues of precedent that is sort of leaving cases, you know, on the books, whether or not you agree with them. And, you know, his view, which is not um, not illogical, is that the Constitution controls um, whatever you think about a prior case. There's nothing constitutionally required about stare decisis in his view. So you got to overturn wrong cases. And um, so that's what he would have done to the slaughterhouse cases. The, the thing that I think is really interesting for Justice Thomas uh, sort of coming out of the McDonald case and later opinions that he's issued in Second Amendment cases that may be relevant in the pending case is his endorsement of the sort of rhetorical move Jake was just describing about uh, treating the Second Amendment, uh, not treating the Second Amendment rather as a second class right. I mean, he in a series of opinions dissenting from denial of certiorari, that is, dissenting from the Supreme Court's decision not to hear a Second Amendment case. He has described the Second Amendment as, uh, among other things, the constitutional orphan that the court is just unwilling to step in and protect. Uh, He clearly believes that lower courts are not doing their job in striking down enough gun laws. Um, And so, uh, you know, to the degree that other justices go along with that, and, you know, there's maybe some reason to think that at least Justice Alito agrees. then we may see a real revolution in the way that the doctrine uh, the doctrine looks. But Jake is absolutely right to highlight that that line um, from McDonald in a totally different context as now being maybe the major rhetorical move that we're seeing from gun rights advocates. 
Um, thanks. And I just did recently a podcast on uh, the upcoming abortion cases. And so it's interesting to know what Thomas's views are about stereodecisis and the extent to which you will be consistent across cases. So anyway, let's turn to the new case. So Robert Nash and Brandon Koch live in Rensselaer County. I used to live up there too, which is near Albany, New York. Uh, it, it has a mid-century city, Troy, which is actually lovely and the best place to get Buffalo Wings, maybe in New York State, also a lot of rural areas. And each man has applied for an unrestricted license to carry a concealed firearm in public for self-defense and other purposes. So both were denied the unrestricted license, but they were issued licenses that allowed them to conceal carry for hunting and target practice. They both appealed that. They both wrote letters describing themselves as law-abiding and as having taken firearm safety courses. Nash named a string of robberies in the area as a reason for his unrestricted license. Both men and the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association claim that New York State's proper clause requirement for an unrestricted concealed carry license violates the Second Amendment. Now, New York State has had these requirements for concealed carry of a handgun since 1911. Um, What kind of evidence does the state offer to defend their requirement for a concealed carry license? Yeah, so I can can take this one. Um, The state offers a couple of types of evidence. One is uh, historical evidence. Like you said, this law has been in existence um, since 1911, in its current form since 1913, almost literally unchanged. Uh, The proper cause requirement itself has been statutorily prescribed in New York state law since 1913. And it's worth emphasizing why the state thinks that that historical pedigree is so significant, because the Heller decision, when it had this carve out for a couple of laws, um, said that they were longstanding. And it, it seemed to assume that that was somehow responsible for making them constitutionally permissible. And, and yet, if you look at the laws that it blessed there, things like the prohibition on possession for those with um, certain mental health commitments or those with felony convictions, those are a lot more recent than the New York law. 1968 is when those modern enactments um, were put into federal law. And so, uh, you know, I, I think for the state, it's not um, it wouldn't be unusual for the state to think 1913 is certainly uh, enough time for these to be permissible if 1968 is permissible. So that's one type of evidence that the state um, that the state submits um, as supporting its law. Uh, another type is uh, kind of the surrounding historical context. So not just this particular law, but states at the time, uh, both of the ratification of the Second Amendment in 1791 were enacting extensive gun regulations so that there has always been this historical tradition of both rights and regulation, Um, but also that we see laws in the later half of the 19th century and early 20th century. So uh, right after the Civil War, we see a whole bunch of states uh, restricting and clarifying the authority of their state legislatures to restrict the manner of carrying arms in public, that this has always been something that courts and legislatures and the people at large have treated differently than having a firearm in your home for purposes of self-defense. Once you take it out in the public sphere, then a whole bunch of different interests are implicated and a whole different legal regime, the criminal law and self-defense law and what that requires outside the home are implicated. So they point to um, a bunch of states that are enacting laws uh, after the Civil War uh, to especially target concealed and concealable weapons like handguns, which are quickly becoming one of the increasing causes for concern of 
indiscriminate violence in the late 19, uh, 19th century and early 20th century. Um, and then finally, they point to empirical evidence that they say supports the law, which is that um, you know, a number of studies contested, uh, although a lot of the empirical literature in this area is, show that uh, restrictive regimes are enacted in states that have lower rates of uh, handgun violence and violence um, from firearms more generally. And they say that supports, uh, that supports the law. Uh, Joseph, you've submitted a brief on behalf of New York State. So is there anything you want to add to what I think was a very comprehensive overview in so short period of time? But uh, anything? To so thank you, Jake. That was incredible. Yeah, incredibly comprehensive. I feel like, Jake, they, they need to call you and get you to sort of like play second chair maybe at the Supreme Court argument next week. Um, no, Jake, Jake was entirely comprehensive there. Um, my brief, which I'd be happy to talk about, is almost about... Um, let's say an orthogonal issue, but a slightly separate issue, which is the methodological question of how the court um, or any court should be evaluating the constitutionality of gun laws um, going forward. And I can sort of briefly set that up. Um, uh, this is a brief uh, filed on behalf of myself and Daryl Miller and Eric Rubin of SMU. Um, and we're addressing um, what, what I think is sort of maybe the looming background question in Bruin, which is not just what's going to happen with regard to New York's law or the law of similar states like California, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Maryland, Hawaii, arguably Connecticut and Delaware, all of which have these kind of good cause restrictions, but also the kind of background question about like how Second Amendment doctrine is going to work. Like in constitutional law, anytime a law gets challenged as violating a right, the co a court has to ask some kind of a question like, well, how do we evaluate whether this restriction is constitutional or not? And there's sort of standard ways this happens throughout constitutional law. You know, we apply what uh, in many areas we apply what are often called the tiers of scrutiny. I'm happy to talk about any of that. In the Second Amendment context, in the sort of, you know, 10 plus years since Heller, there's been a really remarkable um, sort of emerging unanimity at the federal courts of appeal around what's called the two-part framework for evaluating the constitutionality of, of gun laws. And um, it's pretty easy to summarize anyway. There's really sort of a, um, a, a first threshold question is, does this challenge law in any way impinge on arms or activities or people that are covered by the Second Amendment? Some are not. Like we were just talking about earlier, Heller says dangerous and unusual weapons, people convicted of felonies, people who've been adjudicated mentally ill, they just fall entirely outside the Second Amendment. They're not even on the island. You can regulate them without triggering any kind of constitutional scrutiny, kind of like the equivalence of maybe libel or securities fraud or other things which are speech in the sense they use words, but are not covered at all by the by the First Amendment, right? So a lot of Second Amendment cases get resolved at that threshold question because a lot of them, huge chunk of post-Heller Second Amendment litigation is our cases brought by people convicted of felonies who Heller says explicitly don't have Second Amendment rights. So you could lose at step one. If you get past step one, step two of the two-part framework asks, essentially, is this gun law supported by sufficient evidence? Is, is, is the gun, has, the, has the government shown sufficiently that this law is tailored to prevent the kinds of harms the government has an interest in preventing? And this is where the kind of empirical evidence that Jake was just mentioning earlier, I think, is especially, uh, especially relevant. Like, you know, the, the evidence that, you know, states with more stringent public carry restrictions have lower gun homicide and violent crime rates. And conversely, states that have loosened their public carry restrictions like um, Missouri did in a study that John Donahue of Stanford uh, uh, conducted, they saw their rates go up. That's empirical evidence where the government, you know, would put on to say, look, this law is, you know, it's doing what it's supposed to be doing. It's preventing these particular particularized kinds of harms. And 
in, you know, in this area, as in others, courts should defer to elected officials when it comes to making those kinds of empirical determinations. That's something we see in other areas of constitutional law as well. So we are, in our brief, defending that two-part framework, which I think is actually a really good way. I mean, nothing's perfect, and there are going to be cases people disagree with on either sides, especially when you've got 1,500 cases in the last 12 years. We think that's a pretty good test. There is an alternative one, though, um, which I'll just briefly describe, which is called the test of text history and tradition. And this is a test um, most often credited to or associated with a dissenting opinion that then Judge Kavanaugh wrote when he was on the DC circuit, a case called Heller 2. Uh, and then, and the basic rub here is that gun laws should be evaluated solely by reference to text, history, and tradition. And when those things are not clear, then by analogy there too. And, um, you know, we could talk about this at, at, at more length, but our basic takeaway in the brief is this is not a great test, um, not because there's a lack of history. There's actually an enormous amount of history. You, Jake just recounted some of it. Um, uh, you mentioned some of this earlier, Susan, you've written on this. Um, there's actually a lot of history involving gun regulation. Um, it's a bad test because it doesn't give any guidance to courts, and it's not a useful way to resolve questions like, um, is it constitutional for the federal government to prohibit people from carrying guns on airplanes? Uh, or to prohibit, um, you know, people convicted of domestic violence crimes from possessing guns. Those are questions that the framers either would not have had answers to or would have answered in ways that we today would not accept. And I think trying to analogize from their views just is, 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 not, a, is not a good way to do law. It's not how we do law in virtually any other area of constitutional law. You can care about the history, but not think it's the sole guidance. So that was maybe an overlong, not as concise as Jake's, but an overlong view of, uh, of what our brief's about. And I'm happy to talk about it more. No, and actually, it takes me to a question that I had for Jake, which is that uh, Duke has invested in creating a repository of historical gun laws. This is a searchable public database. And actually, I'm going to link it to the show notes because I think it's a wonderful resource for uh, faculty, for students, for scholars. So both sides, uh, if you look at especially at the, the, the amicus briefs, emphasize the laws that existed under the common law or the colonial law or early American law or after the addition of the Civil War amendments to the Constitution. Both sides have scholars who are claiming that the, uh, their history is the history. Can you explain, I, I mean, I think Joseph has alluded to this already, but can you explain a little bit about why this is so important to both sides? And, and how the Supreme Court might have, can evaluate if they can evaluate. I think Joseph has suggested they can't, and I have my own opinions here, but I'm going to ask you, like, how, how have they used history previously in the Second Amendment case? Has anything changed since Heller and McDonald in the way we collect and who is collecting this, this history? Uh, terrific. So thanks for shouting out the repository of historical gun laws. It's a, a compilation that was put together over a period of six or seven years and, and is continually being updated with new laws. It has now more than 1600 laws ranging from medieval England all the way up to 1934 in the United States. And it's kind of just a snapshot. It's not even yet comprehensive that shows the extensiveness of gun regulation throughout American and English history. And 
I think one reason the history is so important, well, a couple of reasons. One is kind of just the nature of American constitutional litigation generally, which is that it's tied to this, to these events that happened in 1791 and 1868, and particularly so for constitutional originalists who look to the public understanding at the, at the time that those um, enact, enactments were ratified to try to understand what the provisions mean. Um, and so for a right like the Second Amendment right, which uh, says it shall not be infringed, implying that it was not created by the Second Amendment, but that it is uh, codifying something that already exists, which is what Heller said in 2008, the Second Amendment's doing, it's, it's preserving a pre-existing right, then to find out what that pre-existing right is, we look to the earlier uh, materials that the framers and founders would have had available to them. That includes the common law, that includes the 1689 um, English Bill of Rights provisions, um, but it also includes not just those rights codifications or those rights articulations, but also the regulation articulations. And so we see uh, very robust debates going on about a statute uh, that was uh, enacted in 1328 called the Statute of Northampton. And when we talk to um, historians who are not enmeshed in constitutional litigation, and especially those um, uh, over in, in, uh, in England about this provision, they say, why do courts now care about um, what's happening in 14th century England when they're interpreting uh, a provision as applied to something like assault weapons or carrying concealed weapons in public. And uh, the only answer that for, for that, I think, is this, uh, this methodology of constitutional originalism. And why that matters in, in Second Amendment cases in particular, um, I think Joseph has alluded to, which is uh, Justice Kavanaugh's um, dissenting opinion in uh, what's the case called Heller 2 decision has been enormously influential. We see before that decision, most of gun rights proponents wanted the court to apply strict scrutiny to all gun regulations. That was kind of the methodological push. They said, this is how we're going to robustly protect gun rights. We're going to apply strict scrutiny. After that decision, we see a lot more judges saying uh, courts should apply this test. They should look only to history um, on the presumption that history is going to support fewer regulations on the right. I think that presumption uh, is probably wrong for a lot of the reasons we've talked about. Um, but even if it is, Joseph, Joseph and, and Daryl and Eric in their, in their brief describe some of the problems with looking only to history as a test. You know, I love Justice Stevens. He went to the University of Chicago. You know, he's he, I, I love his bow tie. I love his love of baseball. But I've always been mad at Justice Stevens for his opinion in Heller because he went so far into the weeds on originalism that it seemed to give in to this idea that we must justify things based on what they meant at the time. And it seemed to me just convenience, right? Because, you know, he was he was right about the history. And so he used some really good history uh, from some people who have uh, are, are cited again in the in the upcoming case. Uh, so so, so I, I, the way I see it is that the on the one hand, uh, people like Joseph and uh, Daryl Miller and Eric Rubin are, are trying to hold the theoretical line and say, look, this is how we should do it. On the other hand, there's sort of the politics of the court, and 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 as as these cases have been argued in both oral arguments and in the briefs, you can't seem to evade the history. And it seems like since Heller, the side that supports state regulation has increased its 
uh, production of really good scholarship that in fact shows like if you want to play that game, you, you don't get the outcome that you think you do. And then as I hear Joseph, I think what he's saying is, but we don't want to play that game. But if you do, here's here's the evidence. I, I don't know what you think about that, but that's that's how I've been thinking about it in some ways. If I can just add on to this, Susan, I, mean, I think what you're what you're putting your finger on is exactly right. I mean, the historical debates post Heller are, but in some in some respects, much richer, but in some respects, a lot more slippery. So they're richer in the sense that historians and others, um, I think, have uncovered, have explored a wealth of historical evidence that was not before the court in Heller. Um, you know, the repository, you were very nice to plug. Um, I'll mention another development, which um, it's not one I've contributed to, but uh, there's a much more active debate in legal circles today um, uh, involving what's known as corpus linguistics, which is essentially like a big data approach to understanding how words were used in various contexts. Again, not something I do, but my understanding is you can basically train machines to read millions and millions of bits of text to see how was the word bare arms used in context? Did it actually mean, as Justice Scalia seems to think, um, you know, carry weapons in, uh, for purposes of confrontation? Or was it really, as Justice Stephen said in his dissent, actually about, you know, connection to sort of organized militia? A lot of that evidence, especially the corpus evidence, really seems to call into question some of the basic fundamentals of the of the Heller decision. Now, this is where the debate gets kind of slippery. Um, the, the way this is true in any historical debate, of course, is that the so much of what of what matters is what history do you look at? Like what's in your vision versus what's pushed out. And you've written on this, if I can plug your work. I mean that like the courts failure to, in Heller or frankly in many other cases, uh, wrestle with concepts like coverture just kind of blinds it to historical realities that others, that actually should inform the way we understand gun rights and regulation. And the same is true post-Heller now where some gun rights advocates would say, well, you can't consider the corpus data because Heller resolved that, we're done with that. Or you can't consider cases that were decided 150 or 200 years ago, which upheld gun regulations because those are pre-Heller. And it's just sort of trimming the fabric to fit what sort of Heller came up with. And the more you do that, the kind of more you're just ratcheting in one direction or another. Um, and we're certainly seeing it in the, in the, in the briefing in the, in the, in the Bruin case. So, um, you know, so much of this is sort of narrowing or widening the frame um, uh, to, to, to win this particular case. Now, as you say, there are those of us who, and I can't count myself here, believe the history matters, but also believe that to put too much weight onto it is is to it's just to distort the way we should be doing constitutional law. I mean, many people see and hold up Heller as a big victory for originalism because you've got nine justices signed on to original originalist opinions, which is true. On the other hand, it's also a five to four decision where you know the justices, all of them looking at some of the same evidence, come to radically different conclusions. Like, what does that tell you about? the certainty that originalism can so can can supposedly deliver. So, you know, to me, that debate's not over. But, you know, you, you also, uh, you know, suggested this earlier. The changing membership of the court means I think that the historical evidence is going to continue to be front and center. Um, you know, you said there hasn't been a, a Second Amendment case since uh, 2010. And this uh, statute has been on the books for a very long time. There's there's great uh, difference among the 50 states and the type of, of carry that are is required. Why, why are we seeing this case now? Uh, is this about federal court disagreement? Is it about public opinion? Is it about new justices on the court? What, what, why are we seeing this now? Right, so Joseph talked about the remarkable uniformity among the courts of appeals about 
methodology, questions of how they should decide Second Amendment questions. There's also a remarkable amount of agreement about substantive questions of constitutional law with respect to the Second Amendment. So uh, no court, uh, no court of appeals has struck down, say, a ban on weapons classified as assault weapons. Um, I think something like five, four or five uh, federal courts of appeals have addressed those and all have said kind of the same conclusion about them. Um, Courts are agreed on lots of other questions. This is one in which there is disagreement. Uh, there is a, a a split. It's a lopsided split. One court of appeals has struck down a law that is similar to New York's law requiring good cause for a concealed carry permit. Um, but for the most part, a lot of the courts are a lot of the courts of appeals are on the side that these uh, regimes are constitutionally permissible. I think we're we're seeing it now, uh, not because that split is new, but because the, we have a new alignment of, of justices. So when uh, Justice Kavanaugh became a justice, we saw the court grant cert on the first case that it would have decided in a decade. And that case uh, became moot because it was a challenge to a New York City regulation and the city repealed its regulation and the state came in and preempted that regulation. And then we see Justice Barrett confirmed and we see a new cert grant coming almost immediately after that. Um, So I think rather than any changes in what's happening in the courts, this cert grant is is almost certainly um, a result of a change in the composition of the Supreme Court. Um, let me ask you a little bit about the amicus, the Friends of the Court briefs, uh, particularly those emphasizing the history of permitting as a way to limit the access of Black citizens to guns after the Civil War. Uh, there's new scholarship out from Carol Anderson that some people will know called The Second Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America that talks about the original intent of the Militia Clause. Uh, which which ship has sailed with the Supreme Court since they have decided the militia part of of the sentence doesn't really count. But I just want to ask you, in particular, there's amicus briefs on both sides that are really engaging this question of race and the intent towards Black citizens in either keeping guns away from them or empowering them to have guns in the wake of the Civil War. And I'm wondering what 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 you think about those uh, about those briefs and which ones we should care to look at with more uh, intent? So I, th- I think there's a really important and complicated relationship between uh, racism and gun rights and gun regulation. I think it is a far more complicated um, and nuanced story than you would get from reading uh, many of the amicus briefs in this case, um, especially I think those that are suggesting that all gun regulation is tainted by a history of racism. I think that's just overly simplistic. I think the history is not as clear as those advocates would like to make it out to be. Um, you know, there's suggestions that, for example, um, New York's law is, just, is you know, inevitable tainted by by racism or by anti-immigrant um, sentiment. On the other hand, it was passed right after a big spike in homicides in the city. It's pretty easy to come up with a sort of race-neutral story for why that might be. Likewise, with gun regulation, sort of um, in the Reconstruction era, some of which undoubtedly was motivated by racism, there's no question, but much of which was also motivated, it was actually kind of a weirdly bipartisan moment when Republicans and Democrats at the time passed gun regulations in order to protect freedmen from white supremacist violence in the South. Um, if I could plug somebody else's work here, uh, Brennan Rivas, R-I-V-A-S, has some fantastic new work out about enforcement of gun laws in, I think it's four Texas counties um, in the Reconstruction era, really sort of demonstrating this fact. Um, just uh, And really, I should say, 
putting paid to a claim in the uh, challenger's brief that there's no evidence of the enforcement of gun laws um, uh, uh, of this type. She points to hundreds of examples of this. So that, so that, again, like many historical questions, they're sort of contested there. What Carol Anderson's work and others, I think, have tried to point out is that um, gun rights have a bigoted history as well. And that goes back as far as, you know, the the glorious revolution where, uh, you know, the, what some people consider the sort of um, predecessor to the second amendment, the English bill of rights guarantees a right that's just for Protestants um, and not for Catholics, right? It's a set against a, a sectarian violence and sectarian backdrop. Um, at least some of the framers, although I would not say this is the main reason for the second amendment's ratification, but some of the framers at least um, uh, wanted to ensure that their militias, which in some cases doubled as slave patrols would not be disarmed. Members of the Ku Klux Klan, you know, asserted that the federal government was curtailing their right to armed self-defense when they were subjected to gun laws and the reconstruction era. So all of which just says that the history is more complicated. I think the other thing is that the the, the contemporary realities are just so stark. Um, uh, in, in again, in, in ways that are that, that are nuanced. Right? Black Americans are about ten times more likely to die of gun violence than white Americans. It's about thirteen percent of the population is black. About fifty nine percent of gun related homicide victims. It's just an extraordinary discrepancy, disparity there uh, in terms of who's suffering. From, um, uh, 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 from from gun violence. Now, of course, many black Americans do choose to use guns. Um, and of course, they should be able to do so on equal um, grounds, with, uh, equal basis as others. But we already have a constitutional amendment for that. It's called the Equal Protection Clause. And if people are being denied guns on the basis of you know, racial or other discriminatory reasons, then the challenge should be made under the 14th Amendment, just as it would be if people were being denied permits to parade or something else, right? Those kinds of racist considerations, they have a constitutional home. Now, it's one that conservative justices have hollowed out and made not quite as attractive as it might be uh, otherwise, but the solution is not to sort of graft this kind of equal protection argument just onto the Second Amendment, at least in my opinion. Are there other amicus briefs uh, that you think deserve more attention? Uh, what do you think of the U.S. brief? Does it add anything new? I, I, we've already heard about Joseph's brief. Uh, it, it, I, and then there's so many. So it's very, very difficult to decide, well, you know, how, how many hundreds of pages should I read as a, just as a, as a person? But Jake, what is, is there, is there, are there one or a couple that, that you really think we should be focused on because there are interesting arguments there that we need to consider? There are, I think, a couple of interesting briefs. I'll just note that uh, there are a significant number of briefs. I think there's something like 84 or 85 briefs filed um, in support of either the petitioners or the respondents, the state or the challengers, or in support of neither party, which is um, what Joseph Reese was, was filed in support of. And there are a number of interesting briefs because a couple of them cross ideological or what you would think of as normal ideological um, valence here. So one brief in particular in support of the state comes from a, a number of conservative scholars, uh, former Judge Michael Ludig, um, among others, say, going through the history. It, it's almost an originalist type brief in support of the state's regulatory authority, saying there is a robust history of regulating firearms in public here. And it draws on and kind of further adds support to a conservative a conservative Ninth Circuit ruling uh, just a few months ago by Judge Jay Bybee on the Ninth Circuit that was upholding um, Hawaii's restrictions on open carry of firearms. That is also a really lengthy opinion going through the history of states' authority to regulate guns in public. 
So that brief is interesting just because it comes out on a side you would not normally think of as uh, as the conservative side. A brief on the other side that I think is really interesting is a brief filed by, um, it kind of gets these issues that you talked about earlier. It's filed by um, Black Attorneys of Legal Aid and other public defender organizations um, and representatives from those offices. And it is arguing against New York State's law on the grounds that uh, it is enforced and applied in a racially discriminatory manner and that it affects Black Americans uh, disproportionately in terms of the punishment that they're receiving for violating these types of laws. So that's an also an interesting one because it raises these questions from, and it's arguing for a result that you wouldn't normally think of as consistent with uh, with, with the progressive views. Um, I think that those are the kind of the biggest, uh, the biggest briefs that I think are uh, interesting and significant. I think that the number of briefs is also significant. And then the fact that a full quarter of them are arguing either for or against gun laws on the grounds that they're either racially discriminatory, that they harm minority groups, or that gun laws are necessary to protect minority groups. Um, and so we see that kind of split in the in the um, amicus briefs too. And if I could add one small thing on there to plug um, something on our blog, Second Thoughts, um, we have um, a couple posts up there um, where our fellows, including um, current Duke Law student Alexis Ogorek, has posted some um, uh, uh, a blog post to give you kind of a general overview of these are the kinds of arguments being used in the briefs. As Jake says, there's 80 plus um, at 20 to 40 pages each. That's a that's 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 a lot of reading, um, but it can at least give a sense of generally thematically what seems to be emerging. In addition, in addition to the race question, I guess two other things I would just that, that, that jump out to me um, when I when I looked through them is that. The, the parties really, really, and this is true for New York um, as well as for the challengers, really are engaging on the history question. Um, and it is really overwhelmingly being briefed, at least we'll see how the oral argument goes, being briefed as a case about history and less as one about um, whether this law would satisfy any kind of what we would traditionally call a level of scrutiny. Um, and that's interesting. The other thing is that the case is really being briefed as if it's just about public carry generally and not about concealed carry. And, and it, the, the sort of hydraulics of this are very interesting. I mean, and you pointed this out at the very beginning, Susan. And again, it's worth emphasizing, you know, this is a concealed carry case. And Heller tells us that concealed carry is not covered by the Second Amendment, right? So on the one hand, you'd be like, well, that's an easy case. They don't have a, they don't have a right to do this. Therefore, they don't have a right to a permit to do it. So this should be an easy one, right? What's tricky there is that um, New York bans the open carry of handguns. So if you're going to public carry, it's got to be concealed with one of these permits. And so the, the case is kind of morphed into public carry rather than concealed carry. And that's interesting. I mean, there's the challenge is not to the open carry prohibition. Um, uh, it's, it's to the concealed carry prohibition. But the briefing, the argument, I think what gun rights advocates want to see from the case is the extension of the right outside the home, not necessarily an endorsement of concealed carry, which would be a big ask. And that's one of the reasons that's significant is that the briefing has happened that way in spite of the Supreme Court seeming to restrict the question presented in the case from this broad question about public carry to the question it granted review on. It narrowed to the question of whether or not these licenses for concealed carry were constitutionally permissible, or these restrictions on those licenses were constitutionally permissible or not. And yet the briefing has continued as if this case is about public carry more generally. So, and you're hinting at this already. So, you know, we know there, there are four main types of approaches in the states. There's, there's uh, you know, no issue, may issue, shall issue, which means you fill out the form and you're going to get it. There isn't going to be the kind of review that you have in New York. And also constitutional carry states that just say 
we believe the Second Amendment allows you to have this or our state constitution. So, and Joseph earlier named, you know, there are other May issue states, some of them like California and New Jersey, they have, they have big numbers of people in them. Um, they also require proper clause. So what could happen in this case? Uh, if the court strikes down New York's law, what would be the impact for the for our laws in the country and the kind of things that states and localities can do, and also what might be uh, the the consequences for 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 how we proceed in thinking about adjudicating the Second Amendment? So one of the significant things about concealed carry and the way you're talking about these regimes in particular is that there has been a concealed carry revolution over the past uh, 40 to 50 years. Uh, that as late as 1980, we still had more than a dozen states in this no-issue regime in which they were banning outright concealed carrying of firearms. Today, no states at all forbid concealed carry. And we are seeing a number of states that have switched not just from these restrictive may-issue licensing regimes to a mandatory shall-issue licensing regime, uh, but states consistently going further and getting rid of the licensing scheme altogether and saying nobody needs a permit, nobody needs a background check, nobody needs any training in order to carry a concealed weapon in public. I, I think we now have 21 states that have no license requirement about 21 states that have the mandatory shall issue licensing. And then we have eight states that are similar to New York's regime and which are kind of discretionary licensing um, licensing frameworks. And those eight states uh, might be called into question by a ruling on New York's. And those eight states, although numerically small, they represent about 20 to 25% of all Americans, something like 80 million Americans live in jurisdictions that have these types of, uh, these types of laws. And so there's two possible outcomes on the on the narrow constitutional question. One is that the Supreme Court just says you can't have discretionary regimes. You have to have a mandatory if a person meets certain criteria, like a background check training requirement, then they're entitled to get a permit. That would be the kind of narrowest way in which the court could rule. It would mean that most of these laws are called into question or unconstitutional. The court could go further and say, you can't even require a permit or a license for concealed carry at all. They could say, you know, this is a constitutional right. No licenses or permits applied at all. Of course, we could talk about the ways in which that would be um, incommensurate with how we teach uh, First Amendment rights. Like you can't just parade down Main Street uh, without a permit. You have to get a permit for that. But the court could conceivably do that. I think that is really exceedingly unlikely. I, I think I, I would be hard pressed to think that even one justice would adopt that view, but it is is possible. Um, in that case, then we'd have 29 states at least uh, called into question um, with that kind of ruling. So what should we be looking for next week? Uh, who will be representing Nash and Koch uh, and the New York State Rifle Pistol Association? Are they people we've seen before? Uh, who will be representing the state of New York? Do we have insights on how the three newest appointments would vote or question uh, based on their scholarship or their lower court rulings? Uh, Kagan's been characterized as a mediator, you know, trying to find common ground with more conservative fellow justices. Is there something she can do here? What, what should we be doing as we're listening next week to the live stream? 
Well, I'll just say it's nice that we can listen. Uh, this has traditionally not been something we've been able to do, but the, the court um, relatively recently has made uh, 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 audio of oral arguments uh, available immediately, which is great. Uh, so Jake and I will have our, our ears glued, uh, as it were, to listening to really what I think is going to be some, some, some superb advocacy. I mean, there, there are some excellent lawyers uh, on this case. Um, uh, the challengers are going to be represented by Paul Clement, uh, the former Solicitor General, um, a legend of the Supreme Court Bar. Um, it's too bad that we won't have video of this because he's sort of well known for arguing without notes. Uh, he'll come up to the come up to the podium and just argue from this, uh, you know, astonishing amount of um, material and argument within his head. Certainly well experienced. I think they'll be well represented. New York will be represented by Barbara Underwood, um, uh, who again, you know, fantastic advocate with decades of experience uh, in the role. I think she'll be superb. The Solicitor General of the United States um, will also be appearing um, for Jake Mando is better than I do. Fifteen minutes. I can't remember what how much time uh, was granted to the Solicitor General. So we'll actually, I have arguments from three parties. All of them, all of them extraordinary. Um, you know, in terms of what to look for from the justices, is this trickier than it was in Heller? Um, I'll, just reflecting back on where I was physically when Heller was argued, sitting in the Supreme Court chamber, we were all waiting for the first question from Justice Kennedy, who was very clearly the swing justice at the time. And uh, the very first thing he said was something about, well, certainly, you know, people in the late 1700s thought that guns were important for protecting themselves against hostile natives and grizzly bears and things like that. And I just, you know, immediately our, our heads sank because... <laughs> It, it right away showed that he thought this right had something to do with self-defense. Also, a historical anachronism there and a very sort of Western view of the world. Grizzly bear is not an East Coast thing, not a, not a thing in the colonies in the 1700s. Uh, but we knew right then we'd lost because that was the vote um, that, that one needed. Here, it's a little less, it's a little, a little harder to predict, I think, um, partly because we don't, I guess we didn't in Heller either, but we don't have um, the sort of long records in Second Amendment cases. Um, uh, or for that matter, public statements from many of the justices that you might have with regard to other hot button issues, whether it's, you know, First Amendment or abortion or, uh, or other issues which are more sort of actively litigated. Um, you know, I think a lot of eyes will be on Justices Kavanaugh and uh, Barrett, um, just because they may be towards the middle uh, on this issue. Um, you know, Justice, the Chief Justice Roberts a couple years ago, I think everybody would have been paying attention to. It's hard to say if he's the median justice on this anymore. Um, probably not. So um, I think there's lots of different ways the court could break here. Um, you know, I, in the past, it would have been a predictable 5-4 or something like that. There's ways you could see it splitting 3-3-3 three, three, three almost um, on particular questions. And it depends you know, sort of as Jake was sort of laying out the possible resolutions, it sort of depends how big some of the justices want to go and how far others are willing to go with them. I could imagine a world in which Chief Justice Roberts maybe joins with Justices Kavanaugh and Barrett to sort of try to hold the middle on a more limited opinion saying, okay, uh, there's got to be some form of public carry permitted and this law goes too far in restricting it, but we're not going to say you have to do away with all permits. Whereas maybe Justices Thomas and Alito, I don't know about Gorsuch, are willing to go farther. That, there's lots of ways it, it, it could break down. And with respect to uh, the Chief Justice in particular, there was reporting after uh, a year ago or two years ago now, maybe, where the Supreme Court, um, after it dismissed the other case that it had taken on mootness grounds, it also denied review in more than 10 other cases that I had been holding. And this was before Justice Barrett joined the court. And so the, there was reporting afterwards that uh, Chief Justice Roberts was just not ready to take a new Second Amendment case that maybe he thought um, because of the, what was going on in politics and the criticism of the Supreme Court at the time, it just didn't want to dive into this uh, new area uh, just yet. And so 
that may lend itself to a potential for him to be concerned about these kind of institutional, um, these kind of institutional uh, criticisms of the court and the kind of institutional values that he cares about, particularly where, as you said at the beginning, uh, the court will be hearing arguments in an abortion case. Um, one month after it's hearing uh, arguments in this case, and just two days before it's hearing argument in this case, it's going to hear the Texas challenge uh, to SB8. And so that might be some reason to say we're not going to have fire all these fireworks in the same term. I'll just briefly mention um, what we know of the new justice's views on the Second Amendment. So Justice Gorsuch, we don't have a lot of writing. He did join a dissent from the denial for the from the Supreme Court to review a case a few years ago. He joined Justice Thomas's dissent in that case. It didn't give much view on what the what the Second Amendment should mean, but it did say this is an important issue. We should take it, and it was about public carry in particular. Justice Barrett and Justice Kavanaugh have both written on the Second Amendment in dissenting opinions when they were circuit judges, and both of them adopted uh, views of the amendment that were much broader than the majority decisions from which they dissented, obviously, um, but also fairly um, fairly robust visions of what the Second Amendment protects. Justice Barrett wasn't clearly adopting any kind of particular methodology in her decision, uh, but she was making clear that the history matters. And Justice Kavanaugh, as we've talked about, was clearly trying to adopt this test of text, history, and tradition, um, but also recognizing, as he said there, that that actually might mean that states have, um, you know, fairly robust regulatory authority. So you guys have done an amazing job of going broad and deep in a really short period of time. Is, is there something I've not asked you about that you think matters to this case that we, we should conclude with here? You've covered so much, Susan. That's the question. There, we could obviously, it's probably our, the length of our answer suggests, go on and on about this. Um, but I think we'll know a lot more um, after the next, uh, after the argument next week. And then hopefully I can come back on, you know, maybe after another 70 episodes. Because uh, <laughs> it's such a pleasure. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because for the audience, we're going to do a series of Second Amendment uh, podcasts, postscripts around this uh, from different sides of the argument and also uh, to get a handle on the oral argument. So yes, we'll we'll have another conversation once we've heard whether it's bears and settlers or uh, or something else that uh, I mean we've we've seen in these cases that sometimes a justice, for example, uh, Justice Kavanaugh in terms of uh, the cheerleader case, you know, he thinks he thinks very differently about punishing students than other uh, perhaps older justices on the court and uh, thinks about sports. So maybe some of that will be revealed. But thank you so much to Jake Charles, Joseph Bloker. Uh, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. And I, I Having looked at the hundreds of documents for this case, and I have two classes that will be doing this case as a moot court, it's so intimidating, and you've done such an amazing job of of boiling it down to what's really important. So thank you so much. Thanks for having us, Susan.